If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, today our guest is Alessandro Vincerelli. He is a full professor at the University of Glasgow. He holds a PhD in applied mathematics from the University of Bern. Welcome to the show, Alessandro. Welcome. Good morning. Tell me a little bit about the kind of work you do in artificial intelligence. Well, I work on a particular domain that is called social signal processing, which is, let's say, the branch of artificial intelligence that deals with social psychological phenomena. So we can think of the goal of this particular part of the domain as uh, trying to read the mind of people and through this to interact uh, with people uh, in the same way as people do with one another. So that is like picking up on subtle social cues that people naturally do, teaching machines to do that? Exactly. So at the core of this domain, there is what we call social signals that are nonverbal behavioral cues that people naturally exchange during uh, uh, social interactions. And we talk here about, for example, uh, facial expressions, about uh, spontaneous gestures, about uh, the postures. And here we are talking in a broadcast, for example, the way of speaking, not uh, what people say, but how they say it. And the core idea is that uh, we basically can see facial expression with our eyes, can hear the way people speak uh, uh, with our ears. So presumably it is possible to sense these nonverbal behavioral cues with common sensors, like cameras, like microphones, and so on. And through automatic analysis of the signal and through the application of artificial intelligence approaches, we can basically map the data, the information we extract from uh, images, from audio recordings, and so on, into social cues and their meaning for the people that are involved in an interaction. And I guess implicit in that is an assumption that there's a commonness of social cues across the whole human race. Is that the case? Yes. Yes, let's say um, social signals are the point where nature means nurture. What does it mean? It means that at the end, it's something that is intimately related to our body, to our evolution, to our very natural uh, being. And uh, in this sense, we all have at disposition the same expressive means, in the sense that we all have the same way of speaking, the same voice, the same phonatory apparatus. The face is uh, the same for everybody. We have the same muscles at disposition in order to express uh, uh, facial expression. And the body is the same for everybody. So the way we talk through our body is more or less the same for uh, all the people around the world. However, at the same time, as we are part of a society, we are part of a context, we somewhat learn from the others to expect specific meaning, like, for example, a friendly attitude or an hostile attitude or happiness and so on, in a way that somewhat matches the others. To give a little example of how this can work, for example, when I moved to the UK, I'm originally from Italy, and I started to teach in this uh, university, a teaching inspector came to see me and told me, 
well, you know, Alessandro, you have to move your arms a little bit less because you sound very much aggressive. You, you look very much aggressive to the students. And so you see, in Italy, it's quite normal to move a lot the ends, especially where we communicate in front of an audience. Well, here in UK, well, people use arms, of course, because everybody around the world uh, does it. However, I had to do it a bit more in a moderate way, in a more, let's say, British way, in order not to sound aggressive. So you see, uh, gestures communicate all over the world. However, the exact intensity you have to use changes from one place to the other. And what are some of the practical applications of what you're working on? Well, it is quite an exciting time for, for the community working on this type of topics because after the very pioneering years, let's say if we look at the history of this particular uh, branch of artificial intelligence, we can see that roughly the early 2000s were the very pioneering time. Then the community established more or less between, uh, let's say, the late 2000 and uh, three, four years ago, when really technology started to work uh, pretty well. And now we are even at the point where we start seeing applications of these technologies initially developed at the research level in the laboratories in the real world. So to give an idea, for example, think of what are today's personal assistants that can not only understand what we say, what we ask, but also how uh, actually we express our uh, request. Think of many animated characters that can interact with virtual agents, social robots, and so on, that are slowly entering into uh, reality and interact uh, with people like people do through gesture, through facial expressions, and uh, so on. And uh, we see more and more uh, companies uh, that are involved, that are uh, uh, active in this type of domains. And so, for example, we have uh, systems that manage to recognize the emotions of people through sensors that can be carried out like, uh, uh, like, uh, like a watch uh, on, uh, on the wrist. Uh, we have uh, very interesting systems, and I'm collaborating in particular with a company called Neurodata Lab uh, that analyze the content of multimedia material, trying to get an idea of the emotional content that can be very useful, for example, in any type of services about video on demand and so on. And let's say more in general, there is a major force toward uh, human computer interfaces, or more in general, human machine interfaces that can figure out how we feel uh, in order to intervene appropriately and interact appropriately uh, with us. And these are a few major examples, let's say. So there's, there's voice, which you could, I guess, use over a telephone even to determine some emotional state. And then there's facial expressions, and then there's other physical expressions. Are there, are there other categories beyond those three that kind of the way you bifurcate or break up the world when you're thinking of different kinds of signals? Yes, somewhat, um, you know, the very fact that we are alive and we have a body uh, somewhat forces us to have nonverbal behavioral cues, as how they are called, to communicate through our body. And even if you try not to communicate, somewhat that becomes a form of cue, becomes a form of communication. And there are so many nonverbal behavioral cues that psychologists have grouped them into 
five uh, fundamental classes. So one is uh, whatever happens with the head, so facial expressions we've mentioned, but also the movement of uh, the head, uh, shaking, nodding, and so on. Then we have the posture. Huh? Uh, now in this moment, we are talking through a microphone, but for example, when you talk to people, you tend to face them, huh? and you can possibly talk to them by not facing to them, but of course the type of impression will be totally different. Then we have gestures, and when we talk about uh, gestures, we really talk about uh, the spontaneous movement we make. So it's not like the okay gesture, you know, with the, with the thumb, it's not like pointing to something, this is a pretty specific meaning but it's just for example self-touching that typically communicates some kind of uh, discomfort uh, it is the rhythmic movements we have when we speak from a cognitive point of view speaking and uh, gesturing are is a cognitive bimodal unit as we say so it's something that is get planned together and uh, so on then we have the way of speaking as i mentioned so not what we say but how we say it so the, the prosody the sound of the voice uh, and so on and then there is appearance so everything we can do in order to change our appearance so for example the attractiveness of person but also the kind of clothes you wear the type of ornaments you have and so on this plays a fundamental role and the last one is the organization of space so you can think for example of uh, a company in general the more important you are the bigger is your office so space from the point of view communicates a form of uh, social verticality and similarly we modulate our uh, uh, distances with respect to other uh, person, not only in physical terms, but also in social terms. So the closer a person is to us from a social point of view, the closer we let her come uh, from a physical point of view. So these are the four, five wide categories of social signals that fundamentally uh, psychologists recognize as the most important. Well, as you go through them, I guess I can see how AI would be used you know, they're all, they're all forms of data that can be measured. And so presumably you can train an artificial intelligence on them. Um, that is, go ahead. Uh, that is exactly the core idea of the domain and of the application of artificial intelligence in this, uh, in this type of uh, problems. So the point is that we com to communicate with others, to interact with others, we have to manifest our inner state through our behavior through what we do. Because if um, we cannot imagine to communicate through something that is not observable. But whatever is observable, meaning that it is accessible to our senses, it is something that is accessible to uh, artificial sensors. And once you can measure, once you can extract data about something, and there is where artificial intelligence comes into play. Because at that point you can extract data and the data can be automatically analyzed, can be automatically, I mean, you can automatically infer information uh, about the social and psychological phenomena taking place uh, from the data you manage to capture. And, and I can see, you know, as I sit here taking it in as you're explaining it, I can think of a hundred positive uses of this technology and then a hundred abuses of it. So just starting with the positive ones, what are some additional use cases that you think about? So I'm on, I'm on tech support and the AI can tell I'm getting really frustrated and so it would elevate me to another level. Would that be 
an acceptable use? Yes, definitely. Let's say uh, the important thing, there is a common ground with all, uh, uh, in general, with the use of artificial intelligence is that as you deal with data about people, somewhat you have to protect properly the data. So, for example, the idea of any application that recognizes your level of stress or frustration, well, as long as it is uh, uh, personal, it can be okay. But if it happens, for example, in a corporation, in a company, it can also become a way to monitor the performance of the people. So there is always a little bit of a balance uh, uh, between having applications that work well, that are that perform well. But we also have to be aware that in particular, in this case, we always... Uh, uh, capture mind data that have to do with people and in particular to aspects of people that in principle we cannot even observe uh, from from outside so then the use of this data is very delicate because we have to ensure that they are properly protected and this is even more true for example once we move to other potentially positive applications uh, in this moment there is a major effort to to analyze the behavior of people that might have mental issues. So there is one big issue in psychiatry that fundamentally everything is based on observation or most, let's say, of the activity of psychiatrists is based on the observation of people, of the behavior of people during particular tests, during the interaction with a therapist or, and so on. So for example, these technologies can help a lot to figure out uh, uh, what are the exact symptoms that a person uh, does, and so they can support a lot of doctors in diagnosing uh, mental health issues, uh, uh, cognitive degeneration issues related, for example, to age. And you know, aging in our uh, developed countries is a, is a big issue. And this is at the same time exciting because artificial intelligence is a bit like a microscope that helps us to see in observation patterns and relationship between patterns that we cannot get by naked eye. So at the same time, we obtain technology that work and fundamental insights about the phenomena we observe. But at the same time, you know, we provide the people that run this technology with an enormous power because they can really penetrate more and more deeply the life and the inner life even of people in the case of the technology we're talking about today. So from this point of view, we always have this balance, this careful balance because between going deeper into technology, but also ensuring a safe uh, and positive use of them. Would it be possible to build a lie detector? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, it is very interesting the difference from this point of view between the attitude of Europe about this type of technology and the attitude of US. So in the US, for example, it is something accepted, recognized as something that can be used and even potentially can be used in a court. So in a case to decide whether a person uh, is telling the truth or not uh, uh, with consequences that can be certain people going to jail. In Europe, for example, this has been banned. So even a research about this type of topics is not going to be funded by the European funding agencies. Now, what is the fundamental issue is that um, uh, trying to see whether a person lies fundamentally means to see whether lying, it is something, is an action that leaves physical traces in the behavior of a person. Now, all the research turns out to show that uh, most of the cues, if not all of the cues that seem to be associated to lying, can be associated to a number of other phenomena. So, for example, a person might show 
hesitation in answering a question, which is uh, a typical, uh, let's say, cue associated to lying, not because uh, he's lying, but because maybe he's a bit nervous or he's not fully comfortable and so on. So this ambiguity uh, makes certain countries to say, well, we don't want to do research on that because it is an instrument that is not sufficiently reliable to decide whether a person lies or not. And others to say, okay, we are aware of this, but still it is an opportunity that can provide evidence that if it is not conclusive, at least it can uh, support decision in one direction rather than the other. But, so you're saying it could potentially be an unreliable uh, lie detector. It, it could be a lie detector that works sometimes. But, yes. But, so let me ask about a different kind of, you gave your five kinds of social signals. I've always thought if I were a credit card vendor and I had a form online, the people could apply for my credit card. And it says, what is your income? And I write $50,000. And then I think, no, that's probably not enough. I'll put 100000 Uh No, that may be too much. I'll put 75000 And so I'm like in this box. I keep changing it by a lot. And then it comes to my social security number. And I should know that by heart. But I type it really slowly. That's like I'm copying it off something. So in one case, I'm probably making something up. And you could see that because... All, if you, all you see is a submitted form, you don't know that. But if you're watching the person fill out the form online and you see they keep changing the income or they're typing the social security number a certain way, aren't those social signals that that person, uh, that, that, well, forgetting the, well, yeah, aren't those social signals that that person may be being untruthful? And, uh, and yes. do those social signals have a name? Yes. Well, uh, this is an interesting problem because, as you can see, when I've mentioned the list of social signals, I have always mentioned signals that we typically display in face-to-face -face interactions. And the reason is that somewhat our way of communicating has been shaped through evolution. And in evolutionary times, there was no other communication than face-to-face. -face. So our entire cognition, our entire brain, is fundamentally designed around face-to-face -face communication. And then nowadays, we start to communicate more and more through these interfaces, technological interfaces, that in a sense uh, force us to leave our uh, body out of the scene. So in a sense, we are going to basically figure out whether there is body language, which is the popular name of nonverbal communication, without a body. And the typing behavior, so the way people type something through an interface, can actually be a trace of uh, social and psychological phenomena. So potentially what you mentioned is true. And, you know, I'm not aware of work done to figure out whether a person is lying through that. But I can tell you, for example, that I have seen uh, work about uh, children uh, learning to type uh, text, uh, words, um, things through, through a computer, uh, through interfaces that can detect the speed of typing. And for example, you can see very clearly that whenever the children are confronted to a word that they find particularly difficult, and they are learning correct grammar, correct uh, orthography, and so on, whenever they face something difficult, they, they slow down typing, or they have more hesitation, 
or they, they tend to use backspace to correct a lot and so on. So in that case, for example, the way people type, the way in particular the children type, gives you an idea of what they find difficult in a text they are typing. So it's not exactly the same example, but you see how typing is, is, giving, uh, is giving an indication. And in my laboratory, for example, we are studying how people type in the case of social chats, you know, like uh, through certain platforms where you can, uh, basically, it is like a conversation, but you do it by typing. That is something that is very common on many, uh, for example, uh, company sites as a form of uh, customer care. Rather than calling a 0800 number, uh, you can basically type with an operator that can give you information. And one thing we have discovered, which is quite interesting, is that, for example, men and women tend to type in a different way. Uh, different speed, uh, different tendency to use punctuation, different tendencies in correct misspellings, and, uh, and so on. And what is very much interesting about this, uh, apart the various applications, including the one you mentioned at the beginning, like uh, possibly detecting lies when people type in a certain way, is that apparently uh, our brain still forces us to use social signals, so still leaves, still social and psychological phenomena, leaves traces in behavior, even when the communication takes place through an interface that is not natural. And we are at the very beginning of this type of understanding because it is only now that really we are trying, the community is trying to figure out how exactly our normal way of communicating, so the use of the social signals we mentioned, uh, uh, we mentioned at the beginning uh, that, that starts from, uh, from our brain. So our brain basically gets squeezed through these new interfaces where we do not have anymore our natural apparatus for communication at disposition. Eh? So we move toward this analysis of body language without the body. Eh? And what you mentioned, the example you have made is definitely in this direction and my work uh, pretty well, actually. So let's take another hypothetical case. And so let's talk about um, a robot that provides companionship to an elderly person. Further, let's assume this elderly person knows this is just a robot and that it's programmed to respond to nonverbal signals it gets. So the, the elderly person who purchases said robot is fully informed about the technology. Is that um, a real use case that you might see on the market at some point. You know, it, 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 it can tell when you're depressed and so it tells a joke. It can tell when you're happy and it, it, it mimics that back. Is that something you see hitting the market? Yes, I think this is something that is, um, there are a lot of people working exactly about this. And according to the forecast, according to the prediction of the main analyst, it is a type of scenario that we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years. And, you know, there is a very interesting uh, point. You mentioned, you know, elderly people are, or whoever uses a social robot knows rationally consciously that as is a machine and not a person. However, we know exactly because there is always our brain uh, working uh, behind that we have these two layers somewhat of working of the brain. One which is conscious, where we know, we think about what we do, and then there are a number of unconscious processes going on. And these processes do not really manage to make the distinction between uh, a mechanical object, a robot that mimics the behavior 
of a, of, of an animal or or of a, or of a person and a real person or a real animal so from this point of view these objects are extremely effective because you know rationally we know that they are objects but actually they stimulate they activate the same processes that get active whenever we interact with another living being so from this point of view, we have already on the market a large number of uh, robots that cost sometimes very little. Eh? We are in the, in the limit of uh, $100 to $200. Uh, and they have a degree of interactivity that actually has very positive uh, effects. So I can make an example which is particularly interesting. Uh, there is a robot called Paro that is a, a kind of uh, a seal uh, one of these animals that uh, swim to the water, it has four. And, you know, it is something that you can uh, stroke, you can touch with your hands, and it reacts with simple movements. And it has been shown in particular, in the case of elderly people, to be very beneficial from the point of view of the feelings. And this is a very uh, physiological, mechanical, psychological reaction we have towards anything that we perceive unconsciously to be alive and to have a certain type uh, of appearance. So uh, actually, according to all analysts, there is substantial agreement that in the next 10 to 20 years, we are going to have uh, social robots becoming a kind of common type of object, like today, for example, cellular phones or smartphones uh, are. And they're going to be particularly interesting, important in this type of scenario, where for many reasons, let's say, uh, total assistance is not possible. So we talk about uh, uh, the, in the case of the elderly having companion technologies. But for example, very important in the case of education, provide some form of intelligent tutoring and emotionally uh, driven tutoring uh, to uh, the largest possible number of children. So releasing a little bit uh, uh, the burden of teachers and so making education much more effective for a larger number of, uh, of people. So you're familiar, I assume, with the work of Weizenbaum and Eliza? Yes, yes. Okay, let's yes. set that up for the listener because Weizenbaum would say even if people were fully informed of it, it's still a bad technology. So the setup of this is there was a computer science AI person back in the 60s, Weizenbaum, a professor who wrote uh, a program called Eliza. Eliza was a chatbot that you would tell it your problems, and it was incredibly simplistic. You would say, I'm having a bad day. It would say, why are you having a bad day? And then you say, I'm having a bad day because of my mother. And it would say, why is your mother causing you to have a bad day? I mean, it's really simple. But what Weizenbaum found out was that he saw people pouring their heart out to Eliza, even though they knew it was just a program. And he kind of turned on Eliza and, and artificial intelligence. And he said that when the computer says, I understand it's just a lie because there's no I and there's nothing that understands anything. And he became very nervous about using machines in a way that people would empathize with them. And he would, he would I would assume, uh, deeply object to giving uh, um, machines the ability to, what he would say is manipulate people, manipulate our emotions by faking certain emotional reactions. What, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yes, this is one of the very deep ethical problems, ethical issues uh, our community actually faces. So ELISA has been just the beginning. Nowadays, we really have evidence, and there is there have been experiments in using, for example, uh, virtual agents to deliver some kind of therapeutic processes to people affected by depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and so on. And what has been observed, which is very interesting, is that not only people uh, tend to react to these objects like if they are humans, and this is something that we know exactly because our mind, our brain tricks us because it is unable at a deeper level to distinguish between alive people and uh, simply something that looks like it is alive. But it turns out that people tend to disclose much more about their inner life to a machine than how they do it, for example, with another human being. And uh, this is at the same time very interesting because, you know, for people to disclose about uh, things they feel particularly disturbed about, it's something that really helps to release. So potentially, uh, these objects, these technologies can help a lot. And the reason why people disclose more is that feeling that there is a machine, knowing that there is a machine, they don't feel judged, they don't have the feeling that someone will know about, and so on. So the real point there is what happens with the data that gets collected during the process. So clearly, if this data is recorded, stored, and used for purposes that are different uh, from the benefit of the patients. And this opens a number of uh, scenarios that from an ethical point of view are quite worrying. But for example, if we ensure that these technologies do not record anything or do not store any memory or data of the interaction, but then they can potentially be very positive. So let's say, in general, uh, when I discuss about this type of issues, I tend to think that the danger the problems never really come from machines, they come from people. So this is really about uh, diffusing as much awareness as possible of how these machines work, of what they can do, and of all the mechanism of the management of the data that these machines collect. Huh? And possibly on the possibility not to collect the data, not to store the data, so that we do not give any power uh, to, to, to the people around us, to the people that manage these uh, technologies, to use that uh, against us. But uh, fundamentally, I think that the problem here is not technology, but it's really in, in ourselves as, as people, as people that develop and as people that use this technology uh, to, to, to set up a proper, a proper context, a proper framework uh, to avoid the dangers that can come from, from them. So Radiolab is a popular podcast, and I remember an episode of those I listened to, and they took a, a simple animal. It was called a Furby. It's a toy. Yeah. And the thing about the Furby is if you turn it upside down, it says, I'm scared in a plaintive voice. And children, when it, they heard it, would want to ride it because they felt, they felt bad for the Furby. So even though they knew the Furby didn't feel pain, like you said, we're so wired towards empathy and towards, towards that, that even knowing it doesn't mean we're immune from it. And I wonder if it works, I wonder if it works in reverse, that if you, if you make a robot that looks like a person, has a human voice and 
and then it, um, and then say it is a companion and the person knows and it doesn't record or save any data. And then one day it breaks and you throw it away. You just throw it on the heap, you know, on the trash heap or whatever. You recycle it. Could that in any way have a negative effect on, on, on the whole concept of human rights? And I mean, if, if you teach people it's okay to take something that looks and speaks and acts like a human and treat it a certain way that you would never treat a person, does that, does that somehow lessen? I, I'm thinking specifically of this case in um, Japan with this robot they, they let loose in this mall. And they found that little little kids would try to get in its way and block it, and then they would hit it. And uh, and la- later, when they were asked, "Do you think the robot was upset?" they would say, "Yes, eighty percent of them did." And so I wonder if, in making things that have human voices and human names, we aren't somehow lessening what it means to actually be a human and have human rights. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, this is one of the most interesting and most open questions we have. Uh, at the very moment, as I mentioned earlier, that these technologies are going to, became, to become something common in, in our everyday life. So at the moment, there is no answer exactly because at the moment, all these effects that have been observed, like the one you mentioned about the children basically mistreating the robot uh, in a public space, at the moment, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence of what can happen but we do not really have a real serial studies about uh, it can have. Let's say that uh, I think uh, from this point of view, the closest thing I can imagine is uh, for people of my, my age, I remember when uh, I was uh, roughly in my, I was a teenager, when video games started to become uh, uh, a very popular form of entertainment and accessible to, to everybody, there were a lot of video games that actually included some violence. You were shooting at people or you were shooting at living beings and so on. And there was an enormous debate uh, whether this would have made of our generation a generation particularly viable, violent or prone to mistreat uh, others. So now, after 25, 30 years, uh, somewhat we observe that this is not really the case. And if there is any increase in the violence of society, I think it will be hard to attribute it to the diffusion of this type of video games. So my hope is that someone we are going to observe the same type of phenomenon, meaning that the fact that somewhat we have objects that uh, uh, look like people, look like living beings, but at the same time we can dispose of them, uh, will not transform us into, into people that, uh, that will dispose of in the same way uh, of other people. However, this is definitely an open question, and with these machines become more and more realistic, and what is important, better and better designed to activate those cognitive processes that we activate when we interact with others, because that is the trick. Uh, at this point, we can only have hope that the efforts you mentioned are not going to take in place, and we keep distinguishing, in any case, clearly, the difference between dealing with living beings, uh, people or animals or uh, whatever else, and uh, machines. You know, when I think of other applications of this technology, the most commercial one imaginable is using it in advertising. Is that something that people are doing? And 
is that something people should do? Is it inherently ethical? I mean, on the one hand, you say, look, reading somebody's emotional state and then showing them advertising that's consistent with that, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. And other people <laughs> might say, well, uh, you know, maybe there is. What are, what, first of all, is it being done? And second, should it be done? Yes. So what is interesting here is that social signals is something that is uh, used a lot in advertisement. Think, for example, of how uh, very famous people or very beautiful people, and we go back to appearance as a social signal, is somewhat used in order to convince us to buy certain, uh, certain products. So at the moment, uh, there is no use yet of uh, uh, technologies that might look like an agent, like a robot to convince people uh, to buy certain things rather than others. However, we know that there are some commercial uh, uh, platforms. Eh? Think about, for example, uh, Facebook, if I can mention it, Google and so on, that somewhat analyze our emotions, in particular Facebook, and the content we access depends on that. Uh, and based on that particular emotions or that particular social cues, uh, meaning the manifestation of our inner state we, we, we manifest through the use of these technologies, some of they decide what type of content and what type of advertisement we, we receive. And if you remember very recently, there was the case that has made a lot of, uh, a lot of noise about Cambridge Analytica, this, uh, this um, uh, company that was based in UK, that had somewhat manipulated the emotional content of people. So somewhat has manipulated the content that people were receiving to raise certain type of emotion and orient voting patterns in one direction rather than the other. So it is something that is already being uh, done actually, if not in uh, agents that work in the way we have been mentioning so far, but still through our uh, use, our consumption of online material and, uh, or, or on social media, the way we interact with other people in social media and so on. And somewhat, once again, I think is a matter of, uh, uh, how can I say, uh, it's not the technology, it's the people that use it that make the difference between an ethical and a non-ethical uh, non use. On the one hand, it can be used, for example, to, to, to help people to make right decisions about, uh, for example, orienting towards healthy food, orienting towards a better consumption, more ecological consumption of energy, uh, brief, having behaviors that might uh, be more desirable from the point of view of ethical expectations. But at the same time, it might be oriented to vote in a certain direction rather than another without really being aware of it, um, having forms of consumption that are not particularly good for health or for the environment and, uh, and so on. So, once again, uh, the technology in itself is not ethical or non-ethical. Technology opens certain possibility for doing good and for doing uh, bad. And at that point, it's really how we as humans, as a society, as a politics, etc., uh, decide what we allow and what we do not allow. Huh? However, for sure, it is something that is happening already. It has already, there have already been uh, important cases. And for sure, at least in the direction of understanding how we are and sending us the right advertisement at the right moment, it is something that is going to happen soon if it is not happening already. Yeah. So where 
do you get data to train your data models? Where do you get just a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of expressions? Um, yes. So uh, somewhat in general, we always start with laboratory data. So in general, we invite volunteers to participate in our experiments. Funnily enough, in most cases, it is students of the university. So interestingly enough, most of the studies in the literature are always about university students, which in a sense is the category of people that, uh, uh, that at least in scientific terms, we end up knowing uh, best than any, than any other else. So this is in general the material we use to start obtaining the models because we can control the conditions, uh, we can know exactly what we get, and from that point of view, it helps us to get inside. And then, uh, you know, there is an enormous amount of material nowadays online on the web. I think of the major repositories uh, like YouTube, often accompanied by descriptions, and so we can use those descriptions to figure out when there are people laughing, when there are people crying, when there are people being happy, when there are people being unhappy, and so on. And it is a material which is quite chaotic, magmatic, because you really find any type of effects inside. However, one of the interesting things of artificial intelligence approaches is that they manage to deal with the, with the noise you have in natural data, <clears throat> and so the type of material can be used to train models that then appear to work pretty well uh, uh, in the applications we develop. I remember reading a long time ago that it was posited that people's eyes dilate when they look at something desirable. And so in magazine ads, they would darken people's pupils. Have you ever heard that little anecdotal piece of trivia? Well, yes, the study of how pupils dilate, actually, it goes back to a long time ago. And it was, uh, these were studies made in particular by Daniel Kahneman that got a Nobel Prize in economics because of the studies, because he opened this type of big field, which is behavioral uh, economics. And yes, it is true. This is a very observable physiological reaction we have, even though we have to pay attention because it is quite ambiguous. Once again, you see... Uh, both our uh, uh, social cues and our physiological signals are always ambiguous. Natural design communication to be ambiguous because we always need to negotiate the meaning, and in a sense, we always need to protect what happens inside us. So pupils dilate when you see something desirable, but pupils dilate also when there is uh, less light. So if the environment gets darker, you need to dilate the pupils to absorb more light from the environment. So it's, it's always very difficult to figure out whether the, uh, this change in the size of the um, uh, pupils is related to what you see or simply to a change in lighting. And so when you are in a laboratory, when you are in a control environment, you can trust that observation 100%. But of course, when you are in the real world, you never know exactly where it can come, uh, where it can come from. So you're a university professor. Do you do you apply this technology in the um, in the commercial world? And are there any initiatives there you can talk about? Yes. So in this moment, after the very pioneering stage, now there are a lot of companies around the world that uh, 
start bringing, many of them actually are people that have been studying, uh, studying with the people that are most active in this type of domains. So in my particular case, for example, I have a collaboration with a company called NeuroData Lab that focuses in particular on the analysis of multimedia material uh, as a form of data mining. So trying to figure out exactly what is the emotional content of data in order to uh, somewhat provide this content to people that might be interested in particular type uh, of emotions. Another company I collaborate with, for example, the name is Colwell. It is a company that records oral presentations and somewhat uh, we have approaches for the uh, automatic analysis of the performance. So, so he's a person speaking in a way that sounds uh, interesting, that engages the audience or, uh, or not. In other cases, for example, there has been a lot of work. There is in particular, uh, probably one of the very first company was called Affectiva, uh, which is a company, is a spin-off of MIT, of the MIT Media Lab, that analyzes the emotion of people through different types of sensors. Uh, you can have sensors that you can carry on you and measure your physiological signals and figure out your type of emotional state. Or you can install it on your computer and through the webcam looks at your face and through the analysis of the facial expression uh, somewhat uh, captures your, uh, uh, tries to figure out what is your emotion. And then now there is the big chapter, let's say, of the big uh, area of uh, social robotics, for example. I collaborate with a company called SoftBank Robotics uh, that produces um, very famous, very popular uh, robotic platforms like the Now, like the Pepper, uh, that interacts with people. They, they are very nice. They look a bit like children. They have a nice uh, appearance. And we are studying, for example, how uh, to change the gestures of these robots so that they can quickly engage with people in public spaces. <coughs> Typically, very noisy, very chaotic, and so rather than interacting via speech, it is good to interact. And this is a suggestion, by the way, that comes from, from natural, animal, typical, uh, associate, uh, acoustic uh, signals eh, that can be, uh, can be difficult to hear in an environment which is particularly noisy with movements that can be perceived at high distance. So we are applying exactly the same type of idea in the case of robots in a shopping center, very noisy, so that it can attract the attention of the visitors and provide indications and give indications about uh, where to find certain things uh, or simply to direct the large amount of people that come uh, towards a certain part of the shopping mall rather than another one. Uh, so these are a few, uh, let's say, practical examples, but you can find uh, uh, many others. And there is, for example, a very interesting company called Audirin that analyzes speech in order to find a wall range of different characteristics that go from uh, the possible prevalence of mental uh, issues, like, for example, depressions, up to the, 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 the amount of alcohol that has been consumed in the last hours, and in particular, whether that amount is large enough to make your ability to speak uh, uh, compromise, and so meaning that probably a person has been drinking uh, excessively, uh, up to trying to figure out what is the particular accent of a person. So, for example, produce uh, uh, personalize or adapt uh, a particular service uh, uh, to a particular case. 
up to what is the emotion that the person is expressing uh, through her or his voice so that you can somewhat react uh, uh, with an artificial agent correctly to it. And so this, I would say, are a little bit... Uh, uh, the most known, the, 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 the most practical example, the couple cover a little bit all of the various communication channels we've been talking about at the beginning, all these various uh, types of social signals we have been mentioning at the beginning. All right. Well, that is all very fascinating. It looks like we're out of time, and I want to thank you for, uh, for sharing some of your work with us. I think you're entirely right. This is something we're going to see a whole lot more of in the future, and and we also have a lot of unanswered questions about it, but uh, it's fascinating to be sure. So thank you for, for joining us. Thanks to you. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.